question this morning as you're seated, I want to first of all ask this question, what do you, do you believe God is able to do? What do you believe God is able to do? I think sometimes we have a tendency, like Brother Larry over here, to quickly spout out, I believe God can do anything and everything, but the reality is that most of us are not living out what we often profess. Because in the reality of life, we have certain things that sort of bog us down. It might be a sin that is besetting and weighing us down. It might be a relationship issue that we're not able to overcome. It might be an enemy that's seeking to destroy and defeat us. It might be uh, a, some, something that constantly haunts and hounds us and humbles us and brings us to the place in which we are seeking God with all of our hearts, and we, we honestly want to say that we believe that you're able to do everything, to transcend my need and transform my life and transform the situation, but when it really gets down to the rubber, where the rubber hits the road, we just simply don't really believe he's able. Or if we did, we wouldn't try to grab the bull by the horns or grab the steering wheel ourselves and to force it and to make it happen in our own strength in our own wisdom, in our own understanding, in our own ability. And yet, we want to believe that God is able, but is God really able? Well, whether we believe it or not, God is able. He is able. And we are coming to a passage of Scripture this morning where Jesus himself is going to ask two men if they believe that God is able. And I think that really is the thread that sort of brings this whole message together do we genuinely believe that God is able to transcend every need that we might possibly have and transform our lives into the blessing to the promise that God wants to give us? Do we really believe it? Because you see, there's a consequence that faith brings, not only into our personal lives, but also into our circumstance. So we're going to study that this morning. We began this series about the transformational work of the Spirit of Christ through belief in Jesus several weeks, if not a couple of months ago. And we learned that God is able. He is able. We learned as Jesus was coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he bumped into on that dusty road toward Capernaum a leper who believed that Jesus was able and he transformed the leper's life. As he comes into the city of Capernaum itself, he runs across a man who's a Roman soldier. The Bible calls him a centurion. He brings a need to Christ because he believes Jesus is able to meet the need. And he says, all you have to do, Jesus, is say a word. And Jesus stops and he addresses the crowd and says, such faith as this I have yet to see in Jerusalem, in all of Israel. And he says the word in the man's life because he believed that Jesus is able, transformed his life. We learn later, after he goes to the synagogue, he comes into the house of Simon Peter, and upon arrival, the family believes that Jesus is able to heal their loved one. Simon Peter's mother-in-law is more than likely on her deathbed. She's incredibly sick. And Jesus walks in the room, and when he does, his presence and his power 
transforms her situation and he transforms her life. Well, after the Sabbath, the whole city, the whole community of Capernaum, many of them gather at the home of Simon Peter because they too believe that Jesus has the power, that Jesus is able to transcend their need. And many who are demon-oppressed and there are many who have physical Ailments and diseases come in droves, and Jesus heals every and various disease on that just by speaking a word. And he casts out those demonic presences and that demonic oppression out of those city people's lives, and forever their lives are transformed because they dared to believe that Jesus was able to help them in their time and their moment of need. They believed it, they believed he was able. Because of the pressing crowd, we learn that Jesus gets in the boat with his disciples, and as they're going southeast in the Sea of Galilee, a storm quickly erupts. The disciples believe that they're going to die, and they quickly go downstairs and they into the bow of the ship, and they wake Jesus, and they said, Jesus, we are going to die, which wasn't reality. And he questions their faith at that moment rather than calming the storm. They did have faith, but they had little faith, and even the little faith they had in Jesus For Jesus is more than able to transcend the storm. He got above the ship and stood on the bow and calmed the seas. And their faith was transformed. Their lives were never the same. We see that uh, Jesus later on in Matthew chapter 9, first verse, winds up in Simon Peter's home again in the city of Capernaum. There are four men, friends or family members we don't know, but they carry their quadriplegic friend to Jesus. They're not able to get through the crowd that is bustling outside of the home, and so they do the only thing they can imagine is they lower him through the roof, believing that Jesus is able to transform their friend's life, and as he is lowered, Jesus transcends his need and transforms the man's life, and his life is never the same. They dared to believe that Jesus was able. And he transformed that man's life. He forgave his sin, and he said, rise, walk. And he did, and he went home. We learn that there's a man named Matthew in Matthew 9, the writer of the gospel account of Matthew, the evangelist, who's writing his own testimony about a time in which he encountered Jesus. He was sitting at his tax-collecting booth, an enemy of the Jewish community, a traitor to his nation collecting taxes and accumulating personal wealth, when Jesus seeks him out and calls him out and he says, Matthew, follow me, and we learn that at that moment he dares to believe that Jesus can transcend his sin and transform his life. And Matthew, I think, at that moment believed that Jesus is able to forgive him of his sin and transform his life, and he gets up and he follows Jesus to become the evangelist Matthew the, who, the one who wrote the, the book, the gospel account that we're reading from today. And his life was never the same. We learn that as Jesus is walking the streets of Capernaum, there's a father who comes to him and he believes that Jesus is able to heal his daughter. And he requests that Jesus come home and lay hands on his daughter. And as they are en route, they learn that the daughter has died. And yet Jesus turns to the father and says, still believe. Don't give up your hope and your faith and your belief in me. And he dares to believe that Jesus is able to even transcend the death of his daughter. And he walks into the home and he raises her from the dead. And her 
And the father and the family's life is forever transformed because they dared to believe that Jesus was more than able to meet their need. He's more than able. We learn as Jesus is on the route last Sunday about a lady who had been hemorrhaging for almost 12 years, believed that Jesus was more than able to cure her of her hemorrhaging. And she snuck her way into the group that was around Jesus and reached through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. And that belief that she believed that Jesus was more than able to cure her of her disease forever transformed her life and her life was never the same. Today, the next to the last passage that we're going to study in this whole transitional message, this series that we've been studying is about two blind men who put their faith in Christ and they believe that Jesus is more than able to not only forgive their sin, but give them sight. And so they put their faith and trust in Jesus. And because they believe that Jesus is able, their lives are forever changed. We've seen many counts in the book of Matthew in these last two chapters where there are people that believe that Jesus is more than able to meet their need. When are we finally going to wake up to the reality and we, like these people, step out of the crowd of what I want to call casual believism and casual Christianity and dare to believe, even become what I might say Baptocostal? I told Brother Andy today, I was walking past his office, and I said, I kind of feel like I'm getting charismatic here in these messages. We're talking about all these miracles. Is Jesus able, church? Is he able, Christ follower? Is he able, unbeliever, to take your sin and to forgive you of that sin and to breathe new life into your dead body, to raise you from a spiritual grave and to set you off into a newness of life that can only be found through faith, belief, trust in Jesus? And the answer is yes. You know, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, as he begins that beautiful passage about all those who put their faith in God, says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things that are yet to be seen. Most of us want to see before we believe. And yet God continues to say that we must believe first. And once we believe, then we will see God is more than able to transcend our need and transform our circumstance and to change our lives. He is more than able. I'm reminded of a story of one of Jesus' most intimate disciples, one of the 12, his name was Thomas. We study this passage. And Thomas had heard the report that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and yet he would not believe. And Thomas continued to affirm, I will not believe until I see and until I touch. And when I see and I touch, then I will believe. Guess what? It was one evening he was in the upper room with the disciples and Jesus came out of nowhere and appeared in the room and he turned to Thomas and he said, do you see? Now touch. And what were the words of Jesus in John 20, 29? He said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. Are you waiting to see before you believe? Are you willing to believe with the expectation, the confidence, the trust that in time you will see? I want us to take a look at this passage this morning, and I want us to sort of take a look at, the, at an out-of-sight faith. Now, I don't know about you, but that word out of sight when I was in high school meant something different than I want to convey today. How many of you remember saying, out of sight, man? Come on, raise your hand. Show your age. Raise it high. Don't be, be proud. Don't be embarrassed, you old dudes out there. It meant awesome. That's out of sight. That's incredible. That's amazing. Now, you young guys out there, just relax. You'll get to where we are one of these days, okay, if you're blessed, Okay. But uh, out of sight simply means we're not able to see it. We're not able to see it, but by faith, we can see it. It's out of sight, but by faith, we can be transformed by the power of Christ. So what is an out of sight faith? An out of sight faith, first of all, as we take a look at the text, is an unwavering conviction. It's an unwavering conviction. Conviction. It's a conviction that doesn't waver. It doesn't waffle. It doesn't, doesn't just kind of whatever. It's unwavering. And it's a conviction that is, is one that is a belief that doesn't change to address the circumstance, the situation, or whatever. It's an unwavering conviction that Jesus is more than able to transcend my need and transform my circumstance and my life. Notice in verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, it's interesting that Matthew helps us see that Jesus is now on the move again. God has other people that he needs to encounter, other ministries that he needs to engage in, other messages that he needs to proclaim. And so Jesus, once again, is on the move. He has left the house where he had gone with the Father to raised the little 12-year-old girl from the dead, and he has left that house. He's walking through the streets of Capernaum with an objective, though. You see, Jesus has already been in this situation before. Now, if you remember when he was, we studied this a couple of weeks ago, when he came into Capernaum after he talked to the centurion, he went into the synagogue, and there was a man that was possessed with a demon And he cast the demon out. And the people there in that little synagogue, the people that were there in church that day, watched where he went. And then they went and observed the Sabbath meal. And then they came in droves to Simon Peter's house. And there were so many people there that the crowd became a mob. And Jesus had to leave in which he and the disciples got on a boat, which got him into the storm, which then led him to meet some other demonic guys. If you remember that? So he he knew that the, the, the townspeople of Capernaum were watching and waiting for him. And, and so he was trying to main, remain inconspicuous. Imagine if the townspeople have heard, you know, they did when they heard a, a, Jesus had cast out a demon, they followed him in droves. Imagine them hearing that Jesus had just raised a little girl who had died from the dead. That, that would be more of a mob and a crowd this time. So he's trying to leave the house quietly because he only took the disciples and the mom and dad in the room when he raised the little girl. He's trying to leave the home quietly, and he's trying to make it back either to Matthew's house or Simon Peter's house so that, you know, he's, he's not mobbed again. It's not that he wants to avoid people. He just doesn't want to cause a scene. And so he's walking through the streets of Capernaum, making a move from that house to Simon Peter or Matthew's house. 
with the objective of remaining inconspicuous, not being noticed, not trying to draw a lot of attention. Jesus wasn't one to say, put the spotlight on me. And so he's walking through the small, narrow streets of Capernaum, not really drawing a crowd. Now, there's already a crowd of mob with him anyway because there's disciples and some other people that just are relentless in pursuing him. And yet he's trying to make his way to one of these homes. Now, notice what happens. Two blind men follow him. Two blind men follow him. Now, they're blind. What does it mean to be blind? Okay, I, I wanted to turn off all the lights at this point, but it's not going to be possible. I want you to just close your eyes for just a minute. And, and, and if, you, if you can still see light, put your hand over your eyes. Just do that for a minute. All right? What's it like? You can't see a stinking thing, can you? You're in darkness. There's nothing but pitch black. You can't see a single thing. Now open your eyes. Now there is some light in here, but you get what I'm trying to say. If you try to get up and go to the restroom right now, how well do you think you'd make the trip? Please do not do that now. Our insurance is paid up, but I don't, I don't want to have a, an issue. So turn the highest lights back on. Complete, utter darkness. Living their lives without ever seeing a sunset or a sunrise. Without ever seeing the, the faces of their loved ones. Without ever seeing the birds that they hear that are chirping in the trees. They're in complete utter darkness. Now, there wasn't any sort of government that would help them make a living, and so more than likely, they were beggars. They were forced to live in the streets, to hold out some cups or some hats or some whatever, and collect, because of the mercy of the people that are there, just a token or two in order to be able to provide food. That's how they made their living. I remember a missionary kid in Brazil getting off the bus in downtown Belo Horizonte in Minas Gerais in Brazil, seeing the, the, the masses of beggars that would pick their scores and their scabs, and they would look as horrible as possible to try to get us to empathize and sympathize and have pity and compassion on them because the worse they would look, the more they would get. And every time, as, as, as a growing up as a kid, you get used to that, and pretty soon you become blinded to it because it's always there. And you walk right on by. And these guys were out on the streets. And more than likely, they were sitting in their customary place and they were holding out whatever it was that they were holding out in order to, to make a living and hoping someone would drop some change into their, into their basket. When all of a sudden, they hear a commotion. They can't see it, so they have to ask somebody, who is it? And they say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Now, undoubtedly, they had heard about Jesus before, but they had never seen him. They had never witnessed a miracle. They never saw what Jesus had done. They didn't know what he looked like. They, they, they maybe have heard about him, but they get up from where they are, these four, these four, these two blind men, and they proceed, it says, to follow Jesus. I got a question for you. Maybe you're asking, how do they follow Jesus? They're blind. They don't have seeing eye dogs, but they're following Jesus. 
Maybe because someone is leading them. Maybe because they're listening to the, to the sound of the crowd. I don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us, but they are following Jesus. They are relentless in their pursuit of Christ. They are not going to let him out of their hearing. Not their sight. They have none. And they're following Jesus. Not sure how far away, but it's got to be some distance because they can't get close enough to draw attention to themselves. How do you know that? Because it says they cried out. They were crying out. This word crying out means that they were yelling at the top of their lungs. Sounds like a scream. Have mercy on us, son of David. And they said it over and over and over and over and over. And they were not stopping. I don't know about you, but I was a couple of weeks ago with uh, Owen Taylor Boswell. And he starts screaming sometimes. And what do parents do? You run in to do whatever you can to get them to what? Stop. These guys are not stopping. They are continuously screaming at the top of their lungs, Have mercy on us, Son of God! Jesus doesn't hear them. But he does. He doesn't stop. Ever felt like that? You've had such a need that you've come, fall on your face before God, and you have screamed for help, for mercy, for compassion, and you felt like that you hadn't been heard? Because Jesus hadn't stopped being busy in all this activity and attended to your need? I think we all have felt that from time to time. Notice their request. Notice their, their plea. Have mercy. Have compassion. Have pity. Have some kind of emotion for us. Feel sorrow for us. We're living in darkness. We are blinded. We cannot see. and We're forced to live a life of poverty and rejection. Be sorrowful. Do you ever felt like, Lord, I just want you to be sorry for me just once, please? But they call him, notice their profession, they call him son of David. It's a huge confession. They are convinced, they are convicted of the reality of Isaiah chapter 53 and many, many other Old Testament prophecies in which many believed in Israel that the Messiah was coming. He's on his way, and that this Messiah would be from the lineage, from the kinship. He would be a relative of King David. And they were professing in their confession, they were convicted that he, Jesus, was the Messiah. How did they know that? Because Isaiah 53 said that the Messiah would come and he would give sight to the blind. <laughs> he would give sight to the blind. They're blind. And they believed that as the Messiah, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And because he was the son of David, because he was the Messiah, he had the authority to give them sight. They believed that he was Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. He keeps right on moving. Why? Because Jesus wasn't, doesn't want to do another miracle in public. And he just keeps right on going, and they're following behind. Have mercy, have mercy, son of David. And they're continuing, and he just keeps right on going. He hears them, but he doesn't stop. That's unwavering conviction. We are to pray without ceasing, are we not? 
we are to believe even though we don't see. So how persistent are we going to continue to pray until God finally stops and attends to our need? Faith, belief in the power and the ability of Christ doesn't stop. It is unwavering conviction that at some point, in some way, God's going to hear my plea. He already has compassion. He hears my cry, and he will stop, and he will tend to my need. But you know what? He only stops and attend to our need, attends to our need when he wants to do it, not when we want him to do it. Isn't that a bummer? Huh? Isn't that a bummer? Because his timetable is not our timetable. And we can't call him just like that. He, he's not at our beck and call whenever we have a little need. That's not the kind of God that he is. He has a plan, and he has a purpose, and he has a timing for everything, and we must have unwavering conviction that he hears our prayer, he hears our cry, he hears our plea, because he who we have put our faith in is more than able to meet our need, and in his time, in his way, he will turn and he will address us. These men had an unwavering need, conviction. They also had an unshakable confession. An unshakable confession. They were on rock-solid ground. They, they, they were going to confess their faith in Jesus, and they weren't going to waver at all. They were on a rock, and they were going to hold to that. Notice verse 26, when he entered the house. When he entered the house. Mission accomplished. Jesus was not detained. There was no intervention. He was now away from the crowd and the mob that was there watching his every move. He was now in a safe place in the house where few people, of any, could see anything that he did. Mission accomplished. But notice it says, when he entered the house, Jesus, the blind men came to him. It reminds us here that somehow the men who were following Jesus were so relentless that they didn't stop in their pursuit. And I'm not sure how they got into the house, but they found themselves in the house, in the room where Jesus was. We're not told if they are allowed permission, if they asked for permission, if Jesus told them to come, if they somehow sort of meandered their way in the crowd like the woman earlier in the passage and just found her kind of snuck in through there, you know, like that. They're blind guys anyway. I'm not sure. They, maybe they grabbed onto somebody and just followed them in. We don't know, but they're, now they're in the house. They're in the same room where Jesus is, and we are told, and Jesus now speaks to them. He says something to them. The master now, the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, is now turned and he is facing these men who have been screaming at the top of their lungs for his mercy. Now he sees them. They're face to face. And he speaks to them. And he's going to address their need. He cares. He hears. And in his time, he will turn toward those who continue to put faith, cry out to him, and he will minister to your need and transcend whatever need you have and transform your circumstance. He says to them, notice it's a question. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you? There are two men, but this is a singular. Do you? Do you? And do you? He's speaking to both. He's not speaking to the two of them together. He's speaking to individually. You see, it's easy for us sometimes to kind of meander in a larger group and say, we, 
and not really have any faith of our own. Sometimes a husband will have faith for his wife and sometimes a wife for a husband, but it's an individual faith. Sometimes a church like this, we rely upon someone else's faith to carry us through, but he's addressing the two men that are standing before him. Do you believe and do you believe? Do you believe that I'm able? Do you believe that I'm able? Do you individually believe? Do you have a confidence, a reliance, and a trust that I am the sovereign Lord and I have the sufficiency to cure your problem? Do you believe I am able? I am able. Do you believe that I am able? Am I sufficient enough to meet your need? Am I able? Am I sufficient? I think sometimes he asks us individually that same question. Do you really believe that I'm sufficient to meet your need? Yes. Really? Yes. Really? Well, I have to be honest with you. Sometimes I, I believe you're able and sometimes I don't think you're sufficient enough because, you know, God, sometimes I grab the bull by the horns and I take the steering wheel and I try to force things and I try to make things happen. I don't wait on you. I don't look to you. I don't rely upon your power. I don't rely, rely upon your resources. You know, okay, I say it, but, and, and Jesus is stressing their faith here. He's trying to get them to recognize and realize, am I the only one sufficient enough for you to put your trust in to meet your need? You don't put your trust in anything and anyone else other than me. Am I the only one, the only one, no one else, not even yourself? Am I the only one that you're putting your faith and trust? Isn't that codependency? Yes. But no. Co means two. It's a single thing. I'm putting all my faith, my hope, my trust, and my confidence in him to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Jesus said, I am, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the only way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only one in whom has sufficiency to meet your need, to transcend your sin and transform your life. You can't look to any religion. You can't look to any ritual. You can't look to anything or anyone else, any denomination other than Jesus, for he is the only one. Because it's through him that we gain access to the Father and all the blessings of that kind of faith. Do you believe that I'm sufficient? Hebrews 2. For we're saved by grace through faith, in that it is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. He's all sufficient to meet our need. Do you believe that I can do this for you? Notice what they say. They, together, yet independently of each other, they each one of them say their testimony. They say it to Jesus. They're not saying it to a church or to a pastor or to a deacon or to a friend. They're confessing their testimony and their faith in him to him. When we come to faith in Christ and we make a confession of faith, to whom do we pray? Not to a person. We pray to the deity, to the son, to the Christ, and we put our trust in him. We give our testimony, and he says to Jesus, I like this word, yes. That word yes is emphatic. That word is emphatic. It is an expression of clarity. It is an expression of conviction. It is an expression of certainty. They are sure that Jesus 
is the Messiah and that he alone is more than sufficient to meet their need and transcend their need and transform their lives. Yes, you are the only one. And notice they call him Lord. What does that mean? Well, many believe that the word Lord here is the word sir. And it can be translated sir from time to time. And there are some commentators that would want to convince us that the word sir here is the right word that they used because they really didn't put their faith and trust in Jesus. Well, wait a minute, they just called him the Messiah, their Savior. So they believe that he's a Savior. Why wouldn't they now call him Lord? Yes, after this question. So they say, yes, you are Lord. You are the master. You are the leader. You are the CEO of my life. Yes, you are sovereign Lord, King of kings, and now you reign and rule over my life. You see, there's this unshakable confession. Even when Jesus puts their faith to the test, they stand on this confession and they are unwavering. They are unshakable in their profession and belief that Jesus is the Messiah and that he can and he is more than able to change their life. You know, you and I are going to be challenged from time to time in our belief in what Jesus is able to do or not. And there are many who would want to confess us, cause us to confess that he's not or to admit that he's not able enough. They're going to try to shake our faith and rattle our faith and get us to, to compromise and to bend. But yet we must have an unshakable confession that Jesus is more than able, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. So we see that an outside of faith, an outside out-of-sight faith, possesses an unwavering conviction, an unshakable confession, thirdly, an unparalleled consequence. This is our next to last point, an unparalleled consequence. Faith has a consequence. When you put your belief and your faith in Jesus, there is a positive consequence. We often think that a consequence is a negative thing, but here, when you put your faith, your belief, your trust, your confidence, and you have the conviction that Jesus is more than able, and you rely upon him, and you wait on him, and you plead to him, and, 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 and his timing is your timing, and you're just waiting, and you're continuing to confess and seeking him, there, there, are, there are unparalleled consequences. There are consequences that are unequal to anything you'll ever find on this planet that will come into your life when you put your trust in Jesus. Notice what happens in verse 29. Then he touched their eyes. Then. That's a huge word. After they confess, then Jesus. Then. Faith is not always required for healing in the New Testament. But these people put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Messiah. And once they did that, then. Notice what he does. He touched their eyes. He touched them. They didn't ask to be touched. The centurion asked that Jesus just say a word. The father asked that Jesus would touch his 12-year-old daughter who had died. Jesus reaches out and he touches. It's the most compassionate thing that he could do. They ask for mercy. They ask for compassion. They ask Jesus to care. And so the caring, concern, compassionate Jesus, remember we talked about be merciful to those who are wanting mercy, he reaches out and he touches them. And, and the idea is that he touches them both at the same time with his hands. He has two hands and they're two men, right? So he reaches out and touches both of them at the same time. And notice he touches their eyes. And while he's touching their eyes, he speaks. Notice what he says. 
While touching their eyes, he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. Be it done to you. There is an acknowledgement of individual and personal faith in Jesus. There is an affirmation of what has happened and what is about to happen. Jesus is sort of affirming, you've already put your faith in me as the Messiah. Now you're going to receive something else. I'm affirming what I'm about to do. And there's an act that he's doing here that is to both. It is a corporate act, but it's an individual act where both are going to receive from Jesus equally the same. I kind of like that. It means that Jesus isn't someone who gives more to one and less to someone else. You ever felt like God had favorites? You ever felt like that? Why do they get all that, God? Why does their life seem easy? You know, chances are you don't really know what's going on in their life. (laughs) If you knew, you'd probably say, thank you, Lord, for my life. You really don't. But he's impartial. He acts corporately, but he acts individually. They both receive the same. But notice in verse 30, the first part, and their eyes were opened. Now, you would think that they only got a cure until you read the word and. The word and is huge in this verse. It means likewise. It means also in the original language. And their eyes were opened. And suggests that something happened before they, they, their eyes were opened. You see, their eyes were shut and they were in darkness. Now they're open they have light. And their eyes were opened. So I believe that the Scripture says that after they received saving faith, they received physical sight. They got their healing. Because Christ is always concerned more about our conversion and then our sanctification. Our salvation and then our sanctification. For sanctification comes after salvation. And here we see that Jesus now gives them a positive consequence because of their faith. Keep believing in Jesus. Keep believing that he is able. Don't take your eyes off him. Don't stop going to him. Don't stop praying to him. Don't stop trusting him. Don't stop putting your confidence in him. Continue those things. And in his time and his way, he will come to your aid and he will reward you for your faith. He will. Because Jesus is more than able to transcend whatever need you might have. Even the greatest sin you may have ever done, his grace is more than sufficient. To cleanse you of your sin and to restore you unto the Father. So an outside of faith possesses an unwavering conviction, an unshakable confession, an unparalleled consequence, and lastly, an uncompromising commitment. And this is where the guys blow it. You know, you're all excited, and really I struggled with this all week. You're really excited about where you get to right here, and then all of a sudden, they blow it. Have you ever blown it? Now, just for the record, two weeks ago I went for my annual checkup. I gave them more blood than I knew I had. Okay? After all of those tests, I went back to the doctor. I like to go to do the blood work before you go see the doctor. I went to saw the doctor. And the doctor said, I don't get to do this very often, but just for the record, you are perfect. I've been telling you guys for years I'm perfect. Have I not? Come on, 
You've not believed it. I asked the doctor, can I have that in writing, please? With a letterhead with your name on it, saying that I'm perfect because my church will not believe that someone else other than me, especially not my wife, said that I'm perfect. Nobody's perfect. Notice what happens. Here we see a beautiful example of two guys, I think, who place their faith and trust in Jesus and walk out, and no one's taken the time to disciple them. No one's discipled them. And I wonder how many churches, especially Southern Baptists, we've been more about conversion, not about discipleship. And we've got them to say the prayer, and we've got them dunked in the water, and we put their name on the rolls, and then we send them out in the world, and we go after the next ish, and we forget that our responsibility is to make disciples, not converts. Notice what happens. And Jesus sternly warned them. The master's concern is that these guys not let anyone know they have just been saved and they have received their sight, especially their sight. And he sternly warns them. That's not just something that my mother or my father would say, Charles, would you please take out the trash? It's not one of those. It's one of those, if you don't take out the trash, you're dead meat. There's passion. There's emotion. There's a stern warning. There is almost anger here. It's explicit. It's emphatic. He says, Sternly warns them. Notice his command. See that no one knows about it. That word see is an exhortation. It's a command. Now, they have just received sight, so it's not cruel to say, now see. <laughs> had they not received sight, that would have been cruel. That would have been something mad our student pastor would have said. See, make sure that... No one. That word no one means no one. No one. In any form or fashion, let no one know that you have received your sight and that I am the one who gave it to you. Let no one, no family member, no friend, no neighbor, no no one. No one. Keep silent about this. Don't speak it. People will notice it, but don't share it with them. He says, let no one know. That word know is to know by inquisition. It means someone has noticed something, and they say, isn't something different about you today? Don't tell it. Notice their contempt for Jesus' instruction. But they, verse 31, went away and spread his fame through all the district. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. They departed from this encounter. They made their way back to their home, their family, and their friends, and their neighborhood. For the first time, they were able to see what's going on. Now, in some ways, that's a blessing, and in some ways, it's not. Because I think there's, there's some advantage to being like this sometimes. You follow what I'm saying? Not being able to see the reality of this world. Because not everything in this world is pretty. But they were able to see. They departed. And as they departed, they disclosed. They disclosed that 
they spread his fame. Now, is it bad to spread his fame? No. There are many commentators who say, well, they were so excited. They were saying, and they just wanted to tell everybody. What did Jesus say? Don't. You know, sometimes we try to justify our sin by saying, well, it benefits somebody. Maybe they were doing something good by spreading the fame of Jesus, but that's the very thing that he told them not to do. And there are some times that we need to be silent about the blessings and the, the prosperity and the, the things that God does for us because he just, he just doesn't need that to go around. And he's saying these guys do not, and they disclose it, and they, they display their sight to everyone, and it says all the region knows about it, the whole district, the whole area. I'm reminded of Simon Peter, who after the Lord's Supper in the latter chapters of Matthew, Jesus says, soon I'm going to die, and you guys are going to desert me. Not me, Peter says. I'll die for you. Jesus says, hey, before the rooster crows three times, this very evening you will deny me. No, I won't. And all the other disciples said, we won't either. When a couple of hours after that, Jesus was arrested and they run for their lives. Except Simon Peter who logs behind and follows at a distance, unsight, unseen, in the shadows, watching where they take Jesus. And he finds his way in the courtyard and three times they, they, they recognize him as a, as a disciple of Christ. And three times he denies Christ. And on the third time when he denied Christ, the rooster crowed as Jesus said it would. And he rem- remembered what Jesus said and he was, he was disgusted with his confession and his faith. He failed. These two men failed. Simon Peter failed. The scriptures are filled with failures. This room is filled with failures. This room is filled with people who told Jesus they would not deny him, but we have denied him. For none of us in here including me, are perfect. And yet what has happened is some of us have gotten used to our imperfection. What do you mean by that? One more story, I'm going to close. I remember when Aaron Thomas Boswell, our youngest son, he was uh, fourth or fifth grade, can't remember. But uh, we had his, his eyes checked. You know, they had those annual things in school. I don't, do they still do those? And we learned that he needed glasses. So we took him to an ophthalmologist. And uh, so he got his glasses, and we were driving him home. And Patty and I will never forget, as we were driving him home, he made the comment that he could now read the signs that were in the streets advertising things. And we asked him, could you not ever read those before? He said, no, I've never been able to read those before. And we said, well, why didn't you tell us? His comment was, well, I thought that's just the way it was. Some of us just think that's the way it is. Well, I'm imperfect. That's just the way it is. Live with it. And yet God says through the writing of the Apostle Paul, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. 
And there have been many of us today who have excused ourselves and disbelieved in the ability of God to help us overcome whatever it is that is holding us back and allow God to transcend that need and transform our lives. He is more than able. He is more than able. If you will believe in him, trust in him, and put your confidence in him, he is more than able to transcend whatever it is that's keeping you from being all that Christ intended for you to be, and he will transform your life. He will transform your reality. He is able if you will trust him. Let's Good morning, everyone. As we begin our service this morning, we have a baptism to do. Stephen's coming this morning. Stephen came last Sunday and said, I want to accept Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. And we prayed with him during the invitation. So, Stephen, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your Savior and your Lord? Yes. It's because of that decision that I get to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism. I used to walk in the newness of life. There we go, buddy. 